We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Matthew 24 in verse 15 and then all the way to verse 28 today. That paragraph section of Matthew 24. Each week I've been trying to uh, give you some thoughts about how to think through this chapter. We've talked about the importance of being able to agree to disagree with one another because of the controversial and difficult nature of this text. Last week, I started talking about the importance of understanding the genre of scripture. This is a 2,000-year-old prophetic apocalyptic piece of literature, and therefore it is different from what you and I normally read, and therefore there's different rules for how to read it and interpret it. Additionally, the purpose of prophetic apocalyptic literature that I mentioned last week is for giving us eyes to see to see our world, and Jesus is trying to give eyes to see to his disciples, signs, clues to to help make sense of the present generation that they're living through, especially those issues revolving around the the temple and those issues revolving around the, um, the destruction of the temple that he is anticipating. That was mentioned quite clearly in verse two. If you look at verse two, Jesus says, but he answered them, when they're looking all at the temple, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then the key verse that we've talked about each week, verse 3, as he sat then on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And the these things is right after verse 2. The these things is when will the temple be completely destroyed where one stone is not left upon another? And then they ask a further follow-up kind of question. What then will be the sign of your coming and that of the end of the age? And if you understand that question, then you'll understand Jesus' answer that starts in verse 4. And we've been working through it slowly. So let's read the text and then hopefully we'll be able to have some more thoughts that will help us make sense of this text. Let's start in verse 15 where we left off last week. And then, like I said, through the rest of that paragraph. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will he, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, maybe you've read this passage before and 
you've got some idea, maybe you've heard it taught, maybe this is your first time reading it, or it's been a while. Either way, just rereading that for me right now, I mean, there's plenty of questions that might come to your mind and your attention, so it's, it's always helpful, I think, to have one simple, clear, big idea, and I try and do that each week. So one thought for you to take away here is that Jesus, big idea, Jesus wants to save his disciples. It's that simple. It's that clear. He wants to save his disciples. Jesus is longing to rescue his disciples from destruction. And so he's giving them warnings about what things will look like in the next 40 years after he dies on a cross, gets buried, resurrects from the dead, ascends to heaven, pours out the Spirit of God on these disciples, and as they follow him, he's explaining what things will be like. And what we've seen already is that Jesus has warned them about things that are not the signs of the destruction of the temple, or what he says is the end. If you've been around the last few weeks, you've heard me say, when you read the word the end, he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the age. So not the space-time universe, this passage of scripture is primarily about the destruction of the temple. And so the end of the age is in reference to that destruction of this heaven and earth symbol that dominates the center of the Jewish people and the center of this city of Jerusalem that they're in. And so in the early part of Jesus's description to these disciples, he wants to save them by telling them things that are not signs of the end. Earthquakes will happen, but this is not the end. Kingdoms will rise against kingdoms, but that will not be the end. Famines, all kinds of natural disasters, all these are just the beginnings of birth pangs. False Christs, false prophets, but this too is not the end. So when people go around and say, COVID-19, it's the end. Police brutality, defund the police, riots. Do not be frightened. Why are these things not the signs of the end of the world? Well, first of all, that's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. Second of all, Jesus says those signs are not signs of the end. In fact, those things are not signs of anything because those things just go around all the time. That stuff happens in every generation since the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and they continue to happen to these days. So these things are not signs of the end. But more importantly, one of the big reasons why this is not a sign of the end is because they misconstrue, misconstrue how history works. History is not driven by politics and power. If we believe in a sovereign God who shapes and guides the whole events of history and that the sovereign God responds to his people, their prayers, their worship, and that these things are more important and more vital then we need to focus our attention not on wars and rumors of wars and nations against nation and kingdom against kingdom and COVID-19 and 2020 elections and lobbying determines some sort of political direction. If we have our focus on these matters, we are in the grip and the idolatry of power and the things of this world. Jesus is not predicting political events. He is prophesizing a major upheaval of the political and spiritual world of his day, and he is doing it first and foremost by focusing on his people and the worship of his people. 
Therefore, the jockeying of power that took place in the Roman Empire, Jesus isn't talking about that. The military conquests between rival forces and thrones, he's not talking about that. The most important events that are recorded in ancient history, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about what's taking place in Judea, in Jerusalem, in the temple of Herod. If we keep our attention on the contest for power in Rome, we're going to miss the key events, the real issue that's going on. If we focus our attention in 2020 on the issues of politics and power, then we will miss what's really going on behind the scenes. And that's the real challenge for today's message. Do you believe that there's actually something that's going on behind the scenes? Powers of darkness, powers of the spirit. When we focus on the conflict of the nation, of powerful men and women, we're misunderstanding what's really happening in the world. Our perceptions are off. Our perspective, our angle of our heads needs tilted, as we mentioned last week. We need prophetic apocalyptic literature. And so, do not think that what you're seeing on television or listening to on the radio or what you're reading in newspapers or on the internet, that this is ultimately what's shaping your world, that this is what really matters. Trump's election, Trump's policies, Trump's popularity, Trump's collusion or non-collusion with Russia. This is what the media is consumed with. They think this is the sign of the times. But this is not what we see Jesus talking about in his day, and it's what we should not be consumed with in our day. So sure, does media distort what's happening? Is that what I'm saying? Well, sure, to some degree. Does it promote fake news? I'm sure it does. Are there biases from every media outlet? Of course there are, but that's not what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about the complete over obsession with politics of this day and this world with a complete regardless disregard, that is, a complete disregard for God and his spirit and his church. The simplest way to understand this is in the first century, the most important political event of the first century, far and away, was the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His ascension to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. The enthronement of Jesus the Christ. The destruction of the temple shortly later would be far more significant than almost any of the political movements that were going on but not a single media outlet would have caught it, conservative or liberal. They would have not thought these things as significant because they're wrapped up in this idolatry of power. So suppose, suppose today every church in America decided that they would commit themselves to only preach Christ and him crucified and get rid of moralistic therapeutic deism where it just is a bunch of feel-good Christianity. What if that's what every Christian church and every pastor in America decided they would want to commit themselves to? What if every church in America decided that starting this week, they're going to start a new prayer meeting where every single member of the church is going to commit themselves to be there unless they're on their deathbed? And that we're gonna commit ourselves to prayer. Would this make the news headlines? Or would we still be talking about COVID? 
and the 2020 election and police versus black lives. Not that these things don't matter, but we're obsessed with them. Not one media outlet would see the major news events that are actually driving human history. Friends, do you actually believe in prayer? That's what it boils down to. Do you believe in a sovereign God and the way that history really unfolds itself? My challenge to you is to see that Jesus is warning his disciples so that he would save them. His heart is to save his disciples, and he's doing it by not putting their attention on this infatuation with power and politics. He's doing it by telling them of the abomination of desolation. There we go. All right, now we're cooking. The abomination of desolation. That's what our text is about. That's what the the key sign that Jesus is giving to his disciples. This is what he wants their attention to be upon. The abomination of desolation. And for all of us, the question should be, what in the world is that, Pastor Phil? So for our time that remains, that's the main thing we want to try and answer. What is the abomination of desolation? Because Jesus is saying, if you go back to verse 3, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so far, all he's said is pretty much what will not be signs of the end of the age. And then in the very last verse, verse 14, we looked at how the gospel will be proclaimed in all parts of the Roman Empire. So now you're starting to get closer once you see that the gospel has spread to all of the different parts of the the world, the the known inhabited world. Once that happens, you know you're getting closer. So he's given a little hint in verse 14. But now verse 15 comes and he says, but so when you see this, now you have a sign. Now it's time to take action. Now you know you're right around the corner from the destruction of the temple. And when you see what? The abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Ding, 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 clue number one. If you're reading Matthew 24 and you've never read Daniel, you're out of luck. If you've never really immersed yourself in Jewish apocalyptic literature, you're going to be out of luck. So thankfully, you have pastors and elders and they're equipped to teach you what these things mean. In fact, that's what you're being told in this passage. Look, let the reader understand. Understand what? Daniel. Understand the book of Daniel and you'll understand the sign that you're to be looking out for. The abomination of desolation. So let's just start with that phrase, the abomination of desolation, because that's what everything kind of hinges on in this text. First thing you need to realize is that the actual translation here, more literally, is the abomination that will cause desolation. The abomination that will cause desolation. That's literally what is being said here by Jesus. So when you see that abomination, that will be the result of the abomination will be desolation, that's when you need to act. Because the end is coming and the temple will be destroyed. So in the Old Testament, the word abomination is a word that refers to something that's disgusting. Hatred, something that causes you to revolt. 
it is most often associated with idolatry. An idolatrous offense, some kind of affront to the true worship of the living God. And this is all through the Old Testament. So this is me, your pastor, summarizing a lot of Old Testament scripture and just telling you in some real quick, abomination is a word used to talk about a very egregious slap in the face to God in terms of worship. The exact phrase abomination of desolation that you see here by Jesus is actually repeated four times in the book of Daniel. No wonder Matthew writes this little word. Now let the reader understand the book of Daniel, because if you don't know Daniel, you're not going to get this phrase and therefore you won't see the sign. And then you're going to be really out of luck because Jesus wants them to be saved. He wants them to be rescued. His heart is a heart of love and compassion. And so the sequence in Daniel is this. A Gentile ruler attacks the covenant people, but it does so by getting Jewish people to turn against their own people. Jews who turn away from the true God, then defile the sanctuary and commit what are called abominations. And because of this, because the Jewish people in the temple are doing awful acts of slapping God in the face, that leaves God's house desolate, uninhabited. It leaves God's house unprotected. When God dwells in the midst of his people, he promises protection from the Gentiles that are going to come in and, and seek to destroy and devour them. So when God's in his holy temple and his presence is there, all is right and well with the nation of Israel. But when you slap God in the face, he says, I'm leaving the temple. And by leaving the temple, that means that the Gentile nations can come in and destroy the temple. And this is exactly what Daniel is talking about. That's the sign of the abomination of desolation, a desecration of the temple. And the Antiochus passage that we read earlier, he took a pig and sacrificed an unclean animal in the middle of the temple. This is like a great example of slapping in the face. This is like going to the Washington Monument and burning flags all over the place and just saying, I hate the United States of America. You know, like picture that kind of charged symbol. Sacrificing a pig in the middle of the temple, an unclean animal in front of all of these Jewish people. That's the sort of slap in the face that's referred to in the book of Daniel. And that pattern is what Jesus is talking about. When you see that happen in our day, then you know that just around the corner, the Roman Empire is coming. And they're going to destroy the temple. And it's going to be really bad. That's our passage in a nutshell. An abomination, an idolatrous act. Jewish people, the people of Israel, turning against God and committing acts that are abomination to God. That then leaves the temple defenseless. Therefore, God's not protecting them anymore. Therefore, the Roman Empire is going to come in and destroy the temple. That's the logic. So to make sure I'm connecting the dots here, why did I talk about what's really going on in human history? Because what Jesus is telling them to really look for is not the political turmoil of the Roman Empire here. He's saying, I want you to see the abomination of your people. 
because it's the people of God and the worship of God that's at the center that turns everything. When the abomination happens, that leads to the desolation. And if any of you might be wondering, okay, but can we be sure that that's what Jesus is referring to? Obviously, we could talk all day about this, and there's all kinds of views and discussions, but let me give us one simple clue to help interpret Jesus in light of Jesus. That's always the best thing to do, right? You want to understand Jesus? Well, let's understand Jesus with his own words. If you just turn your eyes back to the end of chapter 23, we're going to get a real clue that this is what Jesus means by desolation. Start in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And then what's the word? It's left to you desolate. Desolate is the same exact word. Desolation. Uninhabited. And what is the reason why the house of God, the temple of God, will be uninhabited in the end of, verse 23, of chapter 23? What's the reason Jesus gives? It's in verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're a city that kills prophets. You're killing other Jewish people. You're killing your own tribe and family. And this is exactly what I think Jesus is predicting, that there will be an abomination of continued persecution against followers of Jesus, of rejecting the one true prophet Jesus and his followers. And the more that that persecution increases all the way up to AD 70, we see a a flurry of this as soon as the temple is done in in AD 66 from, from our historical records. And then that's then the pattern. God then is going to destroy the house by leaving the house and leaving it vulnerable to the Gentiles. So this is the event that Jesus is predicting. More killing and bloodshed by the hands of not just Roman soldiers, but first by those who call the name of God. Those who are killing and persecuting Christians. Jewish persecution of followers of Jesus. When you see that kind of abomination of act, you know the city is about to fall right around the corner. And then really the rest of the passage, it kind of just falls out underneath once you get the abomination piece. Let's just walk through it together. Verse 16. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So notice, we are not talking about the end of the world. The abomination of desolation is sometimes said, that's what the future Antichrist is going to do 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years from now. Jesus is talking about people who are living in Judea, not United States of America. Judea. Those in his generation. So those who are in Judea, I want you to flee to the mountains. What's, what's Jesus saying? In a nutshell, he's saying that things are going to get really bad, and you're going to know once you start seeing this symbol of abomination, this persecution of Christians reaching an all-time high and climax, and and then God's presence leaving the temple, and, and this desecration of the temple, once you see that, you should run. Don't fight. Don't try and be a hero. Don't try and stick up for the Roman Empire or the temple. Don't try and let it stand. You should run for your life, literally. That's what Jesus is talking about. So he says in verse 17, do this urgently. Let the one who is on the housetop, don't go back downside, back inside. People worked on their their roofs a lot. 
It's, it's different. Then they have flat roofs. People would sleep on their roofs. Ask Erica and Sam. They're from the Middle East. They'll tell you all about it. It's cool at night. It's a place to work. It's a place to hang out. So think of it like your front porch, your back porch. That would be the equivalent maybe today. Don't go back inside. As soon as you see or hear this sign, run for your lives. If you're out in the field, don't go back and get your cloak. The cloak would be like your jacket. And so, like, you know, you don't need your jacket. Sorry. Go. Verse 19. And alas. That word alas is the same word we saw in verse tw- uh, chapter 23 again and again. It's the word woe. And it's not woe like damn you woe. Not like that damnation of a curse. It's a woe that's oh, my heart would be heavy for anybody who's pregnant. If you've got to run, I mean, we've got, we've got some pregnant ladies that have just had babies, some nursing moms. This is very relevant. It's like, I'm having a hard time just walking. I couldn't imagine running for my life. Like, this is serious business. No wonder Jesus is saying, and woe to the pregnant ladies. Huh, I feel bad for you if you're pregnant at this season. And woe to those who are nursing infants in those days. I pray that your flight would not be in winter because in winter it's the rainy season and it floods and your, your animals get stuck. And I, I hope that it's not during Sabbath. Pray, pray that it wouldn't happen on Sabbath. Now, now why the Sabbath? Well, because probably some of these early Christians still followed the Sabbath tradition of the old covenant and you're only allowed to go about a mile according to the Sabbath rules and regulations that were customary. So that's not getting very far. Run for your life. But it's Sabbath. We can't go much further. You weren't allowed to sell or buy goods. So there's all kinds of Sabbath conscious people that he's saying, man, that would be a a real shame if on Sabbath people had to run for their lives. And then they were like, well, we can't go any further. Let's just stop here. And you're not really out of the reach of the Roman Empire or the Jews that are persecuting you. And then here's verse 21. For then will be, for then there will be great tribulation such has never been from the beginning or of the world until now. No, and never will be. And this is the moment where many people might be saying, Phil, I'm following you. But verses like this seem like this is like cataclysmic, the end of the world. How in the world are you saying this is just about the destruction of the temple and some persecution of a few Jews or whatever? Okay, First and foremost, you need to realize this was like the end of the world in terms of their world. And this is a huge, huge event in their history. And I read all kinds of stuff from Josephus of how like just awful this is. Maybe at other points in this series through chapter 24, I'll share tidbits. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is that you need to realize that this phrase that Jesus uses here is kind of like a a saying, a common everyday prophetic saying that happens a ton throughout the Old Testament to say it's going to be really bad. You guys know when people exaggerate something and and, and they say something and, and it's not quite literally what they're saying, but you get the point. That's what prophetic literature does a ton. So let me just give you a few examples. Exodus chapter 11, verse 6. There will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, and this cry will be such that has never been heard and never will have been heard again. Exodus 9, 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, a great hailstorm will fall, such that has never been in Egypt and will never be again. Or let's go to Joel 2, 2. 
a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness. There will be spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. It will be like something you have never seen before or never see again in all the years and generations. Or Ezekiel 5.9, And because of all of these abominations that I will do with you, they will never have been done again. And like this, you will never see it again. Or in Daniel, the book that we were told that we should make sure we understand, Daniel 9.12, He was confirmed these words and they were spoke against us and his rulers who ruled us and bringing about this great calamity. And it will be under the whole heaven. And it will be one that has not been done anything like this before. And it will never be done again in Jerusalem. Are you getting the point? I have more examples, but do you get the point? This is stock kind of a saying. It's, it's just a prophetic saying. You read your Old Testament. You, you know Daniel and Matthew just told you, you need to read Daniel to understand what Jesus is saying here. Like that's a big clue. And Daniel twice says this phrase, there will be some great disaster, a great calamity that you will never ever see again in the whole history of the world. It's, it's exaggerated language. So let's grab this paper. meeting outside. This is, therefore, I think, Jesus using that language in chapter 24 and saying, guys, it's going to be really, really bad. And sure enough, it was. And so in verse 22, he says, and if those days had not been cut short, then no human being would be saved. If those days kept going on and on, if God did not have some sort of control of human history, if he wasn't sovereign over all things, man, this would just continue to spiral until every single person would be killed and no one would be saved. Remember the big idea I told you earlier? Jesus wants people to be saved. And so therefore he says, but for the sake of the elect, those chosen people, those days will be cut short because the God of the universe is in the mission of saving. And so therefore he does not allow chaos to continue to just unravel. Verse 23, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ and there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you this beforehand. Jesus loves us. He's warning his disciples and he loves us to say we should be forewarned. He wants to save. And so he gives them these signs ahead of time in verse 26. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east, and shines as far as the west, so will be the, the arrival, this would be my translation, the arrival of the Son of Man, wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures gather. Verse 27 is another one of those verses that sometimes we're going to think, oh, so now we're talking about the second coming of Jesus. I think that's a possibility. It's not my, my present understanding of that passage. Um, R.T. France writes a good commentary on Matthew. He says, this is kind of like what he's about to say later. But I don't think he's talking about the second coming as, as saying, there are going to be those who, who say false Christ. He, he uses a specific phrase, the son of man. And if you were to take one guess, 
what book of the Bible in the Old Testament might the Son of Man be prominent in? After listening to today's message, everyone's first answer should be Daniel. Yes, thank you for all of you who participated in that little exercise. Yes, Daniel. In fact, it's one of the most important stories in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, there is one like the Son of Man, and he is coming. Is that word significant? Coming. The Son of Man is coming. What does our text say? The coming of the Son of Man. Where is Daniel 7, Son of Man, coming to? The throne of heaven, where the Ancient of Days is seated. The coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is not the second coming of Jesus or a coming to earth. It is a coming to the throne of heaven. So the coming of the Son of Man is more than likely, I think, a reference of vindication of the one who is a human who is going to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Read Daniel 7. Again, I'm, I'm summarizing as best as I can. I'm hoping that if some of you are like, whoa, there's a lot here. It's dense. It is. And we're doing it bit by bit. Imagine if I did this whole chapter in a whole day or whole message. The coming of the Son of Man is Daniel 7. As Jesus fulfills this prophecy, it's his ascension to heaven. It's his resurrection from the dead. It's the vindication of the righteous one. And so the coming of the Son of Man, I think here, is a reference to the vindication of Jesus' words as he predicts the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, as he predicts the abomination that is the desolation, that leads to desolation. He's saying, when that happens, it's going to be crystal clear that my words came true and I will be vindicated and I'm going to be the one at the right hand of the Father and you're going to know I am Lord over all. I am King of kings and Lord of lords. You're going to know I predicted these things and did they come true in this generation? Did you see it within 40 years? And when they do happen, it's going to be as clear as day. So don't listen to those people that go around and say, oh, I'm the Christ or follow me. No, no, you'll know my words will come true. That's what he's saying. And in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And the word here is actually the eagles will gather. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, they go around and have these what are called standards. Think of like this microphone stand, like a, a tall stand. And then at the top of it, they've got their symbol that is the eagle. And I think this is probably, again, one of these play on words. Wherever there are these dead bodies, there are these vultures that are gathering and, and hovering over Jerusalem as the Roman Empire comes in and destroys the temple and the Jews. So there's our text. There's our passage. I hope that some clarity has come. That's one takeaway. I'm also hoping that you understand that Jesus wants to point to the abomination the abomination has to do with his people. It has to do with their prayers and their worship. Therefore, you may think very little of what we're doing right here. You may have thought very little of the prayers that were just prayed right before I started preaching. We, we may be so consumed and obsessed with the idolatry of power that what's really going on in the world is when you flip open your phone and read the news. And I'm trying to give all of us a wake-up call with this prophetic apocalyptic literature and say, no, just like then, in this generation, in our generation, the things that really matter is where the true temple exists, the church of Jesus Christ, his people praying. And though there will be no news headlines, believe it, brothers and sisters, this is what is driving human history. The sovereign God who's working behind 
all events of human history. Pray fervently as if your prayers actually do something because they do. Believe by faith that the worship of the saints is going to be what God is working through in his continued dealings with us. And lastly, if there's one takeaway all of us should take, it is that the heart of Jesus is to save. The whole point of this section is he wants to save and rescue these disciples of his to give them a clear sign of what abomination will happen. And when they see it, he wants them to run for their lives because he does not want them to go through this tribulation. He doesn't say stay and fight. He does not say suck it up. He talks about persecution of Christians being normal, and you should see that. But in this case, as bad as this will be, and as bad as we know it was in history, Jesus does not want this for these people. His heart is to love. He's compassionate. And it reminds us yet again of what I just read for us earlier at the end of chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Would you hear those words again? The mother hen that longs to gather and protect Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, if you just would have come, if you just would have listened to me, the one and final prophet, you would have found protection under my wings. You would have known the truth and the truth would have set you free from destruction and said, you're killing the prophets. You're killing the prophet. And so sense the heart of Jesus that wants to save those people and wants to save us by opening our eyes to the truth and the reality of his word and what's really happening in this world and helping us live in a different way empowered by the spirit. So friends, here we all are. Where are you at with these things? Are you obsessed? Obsessed with what's just in the surface level, what you can see with your eyes? Or do you live and walk by faith in the things that can't be seen? And do you know that there's a king who reigns upon his throne, who has been vindicated to the right hand of the father, that the son of man did come. He already did come. And I do believe there's a second coming. I'm not saying that's not happening. I'm saying here, he's not talking about that, but he did come to the father. He did sit at the right hand of the father. He is by the ancient of days and he is ruling history. You're not going to hear about it on NBC or CNN or Fox News. You're not. But here in small gatherings all around the world, you're going to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God that reigns because of Jesus's vindication through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. It's what really matters. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we pray now, I pray that we would be emboldened to know that this this moment now of worship, this time of prayer, that you, God, you hear and you listen, and that the events of human history are being changed and morphed by the prayers of your people. And so I pray that we will be people of faith and that we will walk by faith and not by sight, and that we would engage this world critically and thoughtfully, carefully, that we would care about the events in the news, that we would not think that being apolitical is somehow the answer, that we would be in the world, but we would not be of this world. We would not be obsessed with it. That we wouldn't think the 2020 election is what really matters. God, we know that there is already a king who reigns on his throne, and we thank you for Christ. And we want to pray 
that our church would be unified not by political parties. We want to pray that our church would not be unified by the ways we think about what's best for America. I pray that we'd be unified by what we think is best for the sovereign plans of God in all of the world. And we would join together regularly and weekly for prayer and worship, knowing this is what it is all about. So give us eyes to see, give us faith to believe, and grant us this according to your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.